Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is sponsored this week by Terra Accounting and Consulting. I'm an entrepreneur, and like most people who own a business, it requires managing a lot of very different things, and that can be a recipe for burnout. So anytime I can outsource stuff that's beyond my expertise is a good decision. Well, Terra Accounting and Consulting understands this. They're a CPA firm built for doers like me. They help business owners build financial strategies that pave the way toward increased profitability and personal financial growth. So call Terra Accounting to schedule a consultation today and mention this podcast, mention Hey Amarillo, and you'll get $100 off any service. So when it comes to accounting, payroll, bookkeeping, and tax prep, consider it done with Terra Accounting and Consulting. That's Terra, T-E-R-R-A. Today's guest is Brian Hudson. Brian grew up here in Amarillo. He left to get a degree in aerospace engineering, and then he worked for a big defense contractor. After that, though, he returned to Amarillo a few years ago to be closer to family. He applied his knowledge once he got back here to Excel Energy, and now he's a project manager there who just finished up the giant Sagamore Wind Energy Project, which had to come online by January 1st, 2021 against that hard deadline during the pandemic. I mean, it took a literal rocket scientist like Brian to make this happen. Anyway, it's a renewable, clean energy project. It's going to save customers a whole lot on fuel costs. And when I learned that a young Amarillo guy was the lead on it, I wanted to hear his story. So we cover a lot more than just wind energy, but this is a fun conversation. Here's Brian Hudson. Brian Hudson, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I know that you are uh, familiar with the show. I, I, I'm glad to have you here, and, and I'm excited about what we're going to talk about. But before we get to any of that stuff, I just want to ask kind of your Amarillo story. So how did you end up here in the first place? Sure. I was born and raised in Amarillo, went to Sleepy Hollow, went to Bonham, okay. went to Amarillo High. After I graduated, I was outside of, I think they still may have it, the top 10% rule. Right. Yeah. So, so like the top 10%, if you fall within that in your high school, you get automatic acceptance to Texas State Universities, I believe. Correct. Right? So I wanted to go to the University of Texas and was one person out of the top 10%. Oh, wow. So uh, we can talk more about that later, but one of the best lessons I've ever learned in my life, but had to go and to Amarillo. That was at Emerald High, so you might have been like number 45 and the top 44 ended up in the... Top 10% or something? So Correct, yeah. Yeah, it's a real small margin, I bet. Yeah, so uh, had the opportunity to go to Amarillo College for a semester and then transferred down to the University of Texas in Austin, uh, where I earned a bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering and then moved to Denver to work for a defense contractor, was in Denver for uh, three and a half years, and I always dreamed Denver would be the place to go. You know, growing up, I always looked forward to going to Austin or Denver, then I get to Denver and realize, man, I'm really looking forward to going back to Amarillo. Really? You know, this is where my family is, where all my close friends were. And it took me about 10 months to convince myself that, yeah, I want to go back to Amarillo and applied for several jobs here and was lucky enough to get on with XL Energy and move back to Amarillo and best decision I've ever made and couldn't picture myself anywhere else but Amarillo. What year did you end up back here then? 
Um, I moved back in 2014. Okay. So uh, aerospace engineering is pretty interesting field to want to go into. Can you tell me like how you ended up moving in that direction? Like what, what was it uh, about maybe your personality or your interests that kind of steered you that way? Yeah, my dad's an engineer and my brother's an engineer. So I kind of had the engineering influence from an early age and going through school, realized math and science was where it really clicked for me. And growing up, I was also the kid at Sleepy Hollow Park or John Stiff Park launching the little model rockets okay. at a 45 degree angle to account for the wind, right. and chasing them up and climbing up trees to dig them out. So uh, just rockets were always an interest to me and that's where I figured I wanted to take my profession. What was what was the dream uh, when you maybe in college and you're thinking about a, a lifelong career? Did you want to end up in you know at NASA or someplace like that? Or yeah, it was uh, you know I did some work for NASA in college, some research, undergraduate research, and then um, was just it came time to apply for internships and started looking at companies and found a company called United Launch Alliance in Denver and. They build and launch the Atlas and Delta rockets. Okay, and uh, just applied for an internship there and went up there for a summer. And next thing you know, I was working full time for them. Can you talk about any of the stuff that you did when you were actually working for them? I mean, it being a defense, you know, contractor kind of thing. I, I guess there may be limitations, but yeah, you know, we worked on classified and non-classified stuff. But I was in the flight controls group, so we designed the autopilot that flies the rockets. So. Okay. We're, uh, we're kind of like the Uber service for satellites. People would come pay United Launch Alliance to give them a ride to space. So um, designing the trajectories and guidance and autopilots to launch GPS satellites or Mars rovers or spy satellites. and It's a lot of fun. Okay, so you, you talk about, you know, a little bit of disillusionment in Denver. Was that primarily related to just the relationships and the atmosphere, not necessarily the work itself, you know, before you came back to Amarillo? Uh, it was a combination of the two. So I personally, from a career standpoint, I saw myself, I was going to have to make a decision. Was my life going to be based around my career or mm -hmm. did I want to do more outside of my career, kind of starting a family? Okay. I just didn't see myself starting a family in Denver. And the, the atmosphere definitely is Denver. There's not a, you know, Amarillo, we're very have a lot of pride in being local in Denver. Nobody's local. They're all from other parts of the world and all kinds of, I guess, different approaches. You walk through the grocery store and you try and get out of there without talking to anybody. And here you can hardly get in the door yeah, before yeah. somebody greets you. And says, so maybe a, a live to work versus a work to live kind of scenario. How, how much is your career going to define everything about you? That's exactly right. Yeah. So you, you were able to, to find a job at Excel and obviously, that's not rocketry. You know, there, we're not Excel's not sending anything to space that I know of. Um, <laughs> so, so tell me a little bit about you know the job opportunity, what role that played in coming back to this area. Yeah. So when I was working for United Launch Alliance um, back in 2012, 2013, it's when sequestration was really ramping up and contracts were getting cut left and right. So as a defense contractor, you're always subject to government funding. Right. So I was looking forward to getting out of that to maybe a more stable or more certain spot. And just like a cycle kind of thing. You you know that's coming and your job could just disappear and it's it's hard to have much control over that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so coming back and looking at where there's engineering opportunities in Amarillo, the three main companies are Pantex, Bell Helicopter, and XL Energy. Pantex and Bell Helicopter 
are very heavily funded by government contracts. Right. So that left XL Energy, and that's the place that I was hoping I could get on when I was looking to come back to Amarillo. As an engineer, is there a... Well, how hard is the transition from what you were doing in Denver to what Excel does? I mean, is is it, it, it seems very different to me, but maybe it's just because I don't understand that. Yeah, it was uh, one of my first bosses when I got a job at Harrington Station, the power plant here in Amarillo. They said, okay, Brian, remember, we keep the turbines on the ground here. Right. Um, Explosions are bad. That's right. right. <laughs> but as an engineer, uh, especially a, with just a bachelor's degree, every engineer has the same foundation, the same basis. And when you go to engineering school and get a degree, it's not, we're going to teach you exactly how to do this specific job. It's, we're going to give you the foundation and the thought process and the critical thinking skills to go solve engineering problems. So it definitely was a learning curve, but that's what engineers are good at are adapting and solving problems and figuring out how something works. So what's your official title now at Excel? Yeah, I'm a project manager in our energy supply group, which is the group that uh, manages our generating facilities. Okay, now is that a different responsibility from you know what you had initially when you, you came into the company? Yeah, I started as a plant engineer and then moved into our capital projects group where we manage projects as an engineer. And then just this last uh, year and a half, two years, was fortunate enough to get into a project management position. Okay. Yeah, I, one of those things, that, and one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because of that project. I know that the uh, the Sagamore Wind Project is is one that you kind of guided, and it's a fairly big deal. And what? I mean, tell me, tell me about it. Tell listeners about it. Like, like, why is it so significant? Yeah. So the last three years, we've built our first two wind farms that we own and operate here in Texas and New Mexico. The Hale Wind Farm, which is down by Plainview. At the time, it was the largest wind farm that uh, we had built and was in the area. And then just last December, December of 2020, we finished the Sagamore Wind Farm, which is just slightly bigger. So um, to put it in perspective, it's 240 wind turbines and can produce up to 522 megawatts. Okay. It's kind of hard to understand what... Yeah, so megawatts means nothing to me. So <laughs> tell tell me what that how much energy that actually produces. Yeah, that'd be enough energy to power about 200,000 homes okay. at any given time. Okay. Um, pretty significant. Yeah, and, I mean, that's more homes than are in Amarillo. Is it almost as many homes as are in the panhandle, I would guess. Yeah. Um, we tried to compare it to, you know, this Sagamore is just south of Portales, New Mexico, and we compared it to the New Mexico homes, and it'd be enough to power, you know, between 60 and 80% of the homes that are in New Mexico. Um, so pretty significant. And we should say we're recording this on a day where the wind's blowing about 40 miles an hour and skies may turn brown at, at any <laughs> moment. So um, kind of is, is a, a good day to be talking about wind energy. But, but tell me about like what that means for Excel, you know, as it looks to the future, as it thinks about renewable energy sources, you know, why these beyond being able to power this many homes, like what do these represent for the company? Yeah, we've got some pretty lofty carbon reduction goals. We're looking to reduce carbon emissions by 80% by the year 2030 and be 100% carbon neutral by the year 2050. Which is a big deal for a company that, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago was using a lot of coal, right? Yeah, I was told just a few weeks ago that 10 years ago, looking at putting all these renewables on the system, we never thought we could get more than 10% Hmm. of our load being carried by renewable energy. Today on 
cool, windy days, we can see upwards of 70 to 80% of our energy being generated by renewable sources. And not only does that, those renewable sources, you know, have a, a benefit for, let's say the environment, but like, is, is there a savings that it provides to Excel? Is there a savings that it passes along to the customer? Yeah, that's what I'm really proud with these projects is we're finding a way to, one, protect the environment, reach our carbon reduction goals, but do it economically. Mm -hmm. um, the way wind energy works is it is very expensive to build. Like the Sagamore project was a $900 million project, okay. which is a huge investment we have to make. But the fuel that it consumes, the wind, is 100% free right. when we're done with it. And also, we have production tax credits with the renewables that we're able to pass 100% of those on to our customers. So our customers are benefiting from the production tax credits for the next 10 years. Plus, when the wind's blowing, we're not burning coal and we're not burning gas. So the fuel savings alone are greater than the capital investment it takes to build one of these things. So we're able to keep our customers' bills flat, even when we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars to build wind farms. And it, it it's interesting to me because it's like changing the entire direction of this this industry. You know, for so long, Excel was you know running um, coal fired power plants to do its work, and now it's made this big shift. You know, the last couple of decades, it's still doing the same work, but like how it goes about that work is completely different. And there's not a lot of parallels of companies just saying. This is how we've always done it. Now we're going to do it a completely different way. I mean, what's that like within, I don't know, the culture of of the company or, or how you think about your job when you have to make those big transitions like that? Yeah, it's it's really exciting, especially being a, a somewhat or a younger professional with the company. It's mm -hmm. so fun getting to be a part of these changes. And, you know, XL Energies, Texas, New Mexico, we take a lot of pride in what we do and we're I like to think we're really good at how we do it. And, you know, you talked about the coal facilities and gas facilities. They're still extremely important. They they were originally designed to come down once a year, shut down, start mm -hmm. up, and go full load and run there all year long. Now we're starting and stopping them, you know, sometimes daily. Hmm. So running old plants exactly opposite of how they were designed to be run, but we're still able to do it efficient. You still need those facilities when the wind's not blowing, especially in the summertime when it gets really hot and the winds are calm, still have to keep the lights on and the air conditioning. Yeah, exactly. Running. Yeah. I, I would guess, well, I want to take advantage of this. A lot of people will see those big wind farms and see sometimes they're turning, sometimes they're not turning. I, I wonder if you could just tell us some of the things that we may not realize about those windmills, how they operate, some of the stuff that they do. Yeah, I always get asked, how how big are they? Yeah, and it's, it's, you don't know until you see one pass you on the interstate. You know? Exactly. Um, so the ones we put up are about 470 feet tall, okay. and that'd be from the bottom of the tower to the top of the blade, if the blade was straight up. And then the ladder inside of them for our wind technicians to climb, those ladders are about 300 feet tall. So that's about the size of the First Bank Southwest building yeah. downtown. Okay. Um, there are some platforms in there to let you stop and rest and catch your breath, but we do have, I like always like to tell people, especially when we're touring them, there's a climb assist system in them and it's just a nylon rope with a motor and a pulley on it that you can tie onto and it pulls about 140 pounds of, okay. Uh, so it's not it. all hand over hand climbing up a ladder for 300 feet. It is, but you get 140 pounds, uh, helping to pull okay. you up. Yeah. 
but that's the first question a lot of the new wind technicians always ask me do these have the elevators in them yeah. do these have the man lifts no and then you just kind of see that look of disappointment on their face but uh all oh, the technicians have really big forearms muscles <laughs> and stuff from pulling themselves up i guess that's right but uh, the other thing I like to point out is the blades. You know, they're over 200 feet long. When you look at them, it doesn't look like they're spinning that fast. They're only spinning at 15 rotations a minute. But 200 feet out there, that's over 200 miles an hour. So the tip of that blade's going hmm. 210 miles an hour. Wow. Yeah. What's what's an ideal wind speed to for the I guess the best optimization of those blades? Yeah, we can generate at seven miles per hour and up to about 45 miles an hour. Okay. And that's 300 feet up in the air, and that's an average wind speed. So it can gust over 45 miles an hour as long as it's just not sustained over 45 okay. miles an hour. Because there is a speed where it's blowing too fast, you know, for them to work safely, I guess. That's exactly right. Okay. Yep. So tell me a little bit about the process. I Thinking about this project, you said it was a, a three-year uh, project the last year of which took place under COVID conditions, um, whether that had some economic or some interpersonal kinds of hurdles. I mean, what was that like over the, you know, finishing up this huge project during a time that, uh, that brought a lot of challenges? Yeah. So this project has been in development for over 15 years. Okay. And it's, we always like to tell our landowners that we, uh, lease the land from that they let us come, you know, build in their backyard. We tell them we're going to talk about the project for 10 times longer than you're actually going to see us building it. Okay. Um, so it, it took about 15 years to fully develop it, and it changed hands over time. And XL, we uh, eventually bought the project in late 2019 and then started construction just a few months later in November of 2019 and then finished in December of last year. And, you know, we had a, a great plan laid out um, to get the project built, and then we had to throw all those out the window in March of last year when COVID hit, it just, you know, the parts and pieces it takes to build it come from all over the world. Right. And the global supply chain was just turned on its head as countries shut down and production had to slow down because of social distancing or uh, managing labor forces in factories and stuff like that. So um, we were able to adapt and overcome and uh, never once did we throw the talent and say, there's no way we can get it done. There was definitely times we thought about it, but we just kept pushing and finding ways to solve one problem at a time and we're able to get done. Yeah. So tell me what, like, how close were you to, to missing the deadline or to going too long or, or something like that? Did it kind of come down to the wire or did things slowly, you know, unplug in terms of the supply chain? Um, I guess a good example for the supply chain was back in December and January of last year, um, China was in really bad shape COVID-wise, and that's where a lot of the big steel castings in okay. the turbines come from. So our turbine supplier started moving their supply chain into other places like Italy or Spain, and then March and April yeah. comes along. Next. And, yeah, China's looking okay, and Italy and Spain are shutting down. So um, it was definitely touch and go at points, um, and our goal was to finish by the end of December, and um, luckily I had Christmas Day off, and New Year's Eve off, but there were definitely some long hours there towards wow. the end, scrambling to button everything up. But. Tell me about the the process, kind of start to finish of maybe a single one of those windmills. I mean, how long does it take to just source the parts, get all the parts brought here, then get it you know connected and hooked up? Yeah, I always I like to tell people that if you just look at one wind turbine, it's it's fairly simple, not too complicated. It's 
doing 240 of them at the, the, the right. logistics behind all of it. That's the challenge. Um, so all of the turbines that we are putting up or the vast majority of them are made or assembled in Colorado, um, in Pueblo or Brighton or Windsor up by Denver, and then railed down to wherever we need them for Sagamoros to Hobbs. And then they were trucked from Hobbs to our project site just south of Portales. So, um, it took about six months to deliver all roughly 2000 turbine components to the site. Okay. One of the things that I guess is is interesting about it is is wondering what impact local people might see. I mean, thinking that this is a wind farm that's in New Mexico, um, but a lot of the electricity now that's powering our homes is coming from there. Like, is, is there anything that they will notice, uh, whether it's in terms of their electricity bill or, I don't know, availability or anything like that, that, that they might be able to see and think, okay, this is a result of, of this new wind farm? Yeah, you should uh, be able to see the fuel portion of your bill decrease um, quite a bit. And we've already seen that since we brought hail online and also gas prices okay. reducing. So it's all, that's one of the hardest things about renewables is you have to go build them in rural areas, but the place where it's consumed are the more urban areas, right. the the Amarillos, the Clovises. And we have to build a lot of transmission infrastructure out in order to get the energy from our power plants, our wind farms, our solar farms to where the energy is consumed. What kinds of conversations do you have with those landowners? You know, when when you're thinking, okay, this is a great place to put a wind farm. Um, it's owned by people who are farming or ranching, and and I know that there's probably years and years of those conversations happening before, like you said, a, a turbine actually shows up. So, you know, what what are they saying? How do they feel about it? How do you how do you go about that? Yeah, we're we're really lucky. Our Hale and Sagamore Wind Farms, we have awesome landowners. Um, a lot of them are farmers and ranchers, and especially you know the drought days. The way to make a living out there is becoming more and more difficult. So, getting uh, additional income from royalties that we pay them to build wind farms there, they're very appreciative of. And you know, luckily we can build these and return ninety eight percent of the land that we're on back to its original agriculture, farming, and ranching use. Okay. Like, so they don't end up with, you know, I, I guess they still have a service road maybe that leads to the turbine where you've got to do some maintenance, but uh, it, it gradually returns to what it used to be like. Yeah. During construction, we take up quite a big footprint, but currently down at Sagamore, we're working on reclaiming everything and getting everything back to the way it was and reseeding and planting the natural grasses back where we had to disturb it. And, uh, you know, if it's a cultivated field, we definitely have some corn and cotton growing in the middle of our access roads okay. where farmers have grown it in. We we don't like that, but, you know, it is what it is, and we uh, work through it. Okay. I am curious. One, one thing we haven't mentioned, your last name is Hudson, the president of Excel Energy here in Texas and New Mexico. His name is Hudson. I, I know that, that you're working in a business where your dad's at the top. And I wondered what that's like, just in terms of family relationships. You know, it, it's it's always hard sometimes to work with family. Uh, and I know you're just one employee in a, a relatively large company, but tell me about like some of the things that you had to deal with when you took this job or when you looked into taking the job. Yeah, if you if you would have told me ten years ago I'd be living in Amarillo, Texas, I would have told you you're crazy. And if you would have told me that you'd be working at Excel Energy, I'd have told you you're really crazy. Yeah. Your dad wasn't saying, son, someday you're going to work with me, right? <laughs> That's right. Um, so when I decided and convinced myself I wanted to come back to Amarillo and work 
for Excel, I talked to my dad about it and he said, Oh, I'm not doing anything for you. I said, that's the last thing I would want you to do. And you know, uh, our paths don't cross until you get to the the president of XL Energy. So um, by no means am I working underneath them or for them or anything like that. But, you know, a lot of people like to make assumptions that, oh, you're in this position because of who your dad is. And I, I say, no, it's, I went and got my education on my own. I applied and got this position on my own. And Hudson's my last name just as much as it is his, his last name. So it definitely provides challenges um, and opens a door for a lot of, I'd say, criticism, but, mm -hmm. uh, I, I wouldn't change it. Well, like you said, there were, there were three options as an engineer coming back to Amarillo and two of them were tied to the defense industries. This is the only one left, right? That's exactly right. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit then about returning to Amarillo, you know, knowing that that was, uh, was, I guess the culture here, the environment here, the relationships you had here really were a draw for you to come back. Um, what it's like to come back to a place like this as an adult, you know, after leaving for college, after working someplace else, uh, you returned because you hoped to find something in Amarillo. And I, I wonder if, if you found it. Yeah, most definitely. It's, it's funny how life works out and what God's plans are and how they come together. So I moved back in May of 2014 and my now wife, um, I'm a Longhorn and she's an Aggie. Okay. Um, so our paths didn't cross in college. She moved to Austin to work for uh, Rick Perry in the governor's office right when I moved from Austin to Denver. Um, we both graduated from Emerald High, so we knew each other in high school, but we're never really that close of friends. Mm -hmm. And uh, she moved back to Amarillo two months after I did for wow. the exact same reasons. And I saw it on Facebook and got in touch and started dating. And now we're married and couldn't be happier. So it's funny how your priorities change as you get older too, and what Amarillo has to offer as those priorities do change. Tell me a little bit about what those things are that you identify as, you know, the things that Amarillo has to offer. Once you start thinking about, you know, getting married, um, you know, having a career that doesn't dominate your life or that, that gives you some space to live, um, thinking about raising family, all those things, like, like what, what continues to keep you here? It's exactly that. It's the family and the community. So we're we're lucky enough. We live uh, a block away from my parents, who actually live right next door to my in laws. Okay. Wow. So uh, yeah, when uh, hopefully when the kids show up soon, it's uh, it's going to be awesome be having really that easy. set up. So it's the friends and family and community that support you. And you know, growing up, you're interested in going and going to the central hubs for I, I'd say entertainment and stuff to do. You know, Austin always live music, always something to do. Um, Denver, I love to ski and love to fly fish, and you have such easy access to that. But as you get older, you realize, you know, there's a lot more to life than just going and doing. It's who you're doing it with right. and who you have to support you, and that's what Amarillo has. It's hard to measure, hard to quantify, and hard to explain to others. Okay. I, I wonder if you can, um, to kind of look toward the future a little bit, I, I know – it must be strange being in a position as a project manager where you have this huge, you know, multi-part challenging project and then you finish it. Um, what, what happens after that? Like, like what have you been doing the last few weeks since that project went online and wrapped up? Yeah, we're still working on finishing everything up, but it definitely seen a big slowdown and it's been refreshing and nice. So, uh, the immediate future is just trying to catch my breath and, um, 
look forward and getting ready for the next one. So you don't close it up on Friday and then on Monday they're like, here's here's the next big wind farm project get started. <laughs> I wish they give you some space to breathe. Or yeah, the folks down there running it right now probably wouldn't appreciate that. But tell me what you know, given the um, the focus on renewable energy and wind energy that Excel has had, you know, over the past few years. Uh, what do you think the future is going to look like? Just maybe not as a representative of the company, but as an engineer who's invested in all this stuff, um, what kinds of things are we going to start seeing, you know, over the next 5, 10, 15 years? Yeah, that's that's what we get asked a lot is when we say we're going to be carbon neutral by 2050. And people ask, well, how are you going to do that? Mm-hmm. We don't know. We're relying on uh, technology that's going to be developed over the next 10 20, 30 years. Yeah, I was going to gonna say, is that speculative as opposed to we need, you know, 100 more wind farms like this? I mean. Yeah, I, wind is definitely not the answer for everything just because the wind doesn't blow all the time. So mm-hmm. it's going to be integrating all the different high efficiency gas plants with wind farms, with solar farms. And I think solar is going to be the next big thing. The technology's not quite there yet. The cost isn't there to do it on a large industrial scale, but it's getting there. So that'll be um, part of our future. And then also energy storage, batteries, um, maybe some sort of hydrogen production storage and um, using hydrogen to generate electricity. So it's going to be interesting where we end up. We don't know how we're going to get there yet. But right. So a lot of the a lot of the research and technology is is still in sort of that development stage, the beginning stages, and you're just kind of waiting for some of those efficiencies to I guess, reach a certain threshold, you know, before you start to see a lot more solar here in the Texas Panhandle. Exactly. And that's that's what's fun about the utility side of things is people p- can put solar panels on their roofs or put small wind turbines out in their backyard. But we're looking at doing it on massive, you know, 200,000 homes scale. So finding the the technology that we can deploy on a utility scale to make it work for us and our customers. I, I wonder if you could talk to kind of close this section just a little bit about why Amarillo or the Texas Panhandle or the High Plains, I mean, however you want to quantify that, like why it's a really good place to be thinking about that stuff, you know, for Excel as it looks to to new technologies, to new opportunities. Like why is this a really good kind of testing ground for some of those things? Yeah, well, for wind and solar, we are the – mecca of the United States for wind and solar energy. You know, when you study where to build a wind farm, you want a place where the wind blows. Mm-hmm. It can't blow too much. And you want a place for solar where the sun shines a lot. This, the Texas Panhandle and Eastern New Mexico are the best places for those. And it's obvious as you're driving down I-40 or Highway 60 through Hereford, there's wind turbines everywhere. And there's a reason why. And it's, as everybody knows, we have a really good wind here. Do you, do you, have other energy companies kind of looking to you guys to figure some stuff out? I mean, are you being, is, are the things that you're doing and the successes that you have, like, is, is that kind of being studied or watched by other places or are they dealing with their own stuff? You know? Um, I think the utility industry does a good job of collaborating and XL energy. We were one, if not the first company to come out with our 2030 and 2050 goals. And we've seen a lot of other utilities, following our footsteps and make those same goals and aspirations. And, you know, they're looking to us on how we plan to get there. And we're looking to them if they have any good ideas too. So it's a collaborative effort. 
This episode is also sponsored by Bivens Point. All of us with older parents or grandparents have probably spent the past few months thinking about how to get them a vaccine, thinking about how to keep them safe until they get the vaccine, thinking about their health more than ever before. I'm super glad my parents and in-laws were able to, to get their vaccinations uh, so easily here in Amarillo. Someday all of us are gonna find ourselves, uh, if, if you're not right now, but in that kind of position where we're having to make decisions and think about the health of older family members. And so when that time comes, when you're faced with rehab or nursing care decisions, Turn to Bivens Point, a long-trusted name for senior health care in Amarillo. To learn more about this innovative wellness community, visit BivensPoint.org. That's point with an E at the end. Okay, I'm back with Brian Hudson from Excel Energy. Brian, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon on the WT campus. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes at least eight centuries-old tools made from Alabates flint. It also has a really strong windmill collection. I imagine you've you've seen that. None of those are quite as big as, as the ones that you <laughs> deal with, but um, you can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, so I, I want to start, Brian, with a question that I've been asking most of my guests uh, over the past few months, but it's, what's one thing 2020 has revealed to you about local people? Yeah, I'd say we're extremely resilient. We never let anything stop us from um, withholding or uh, upholding the community that we live in. And, you know, just the idea that we have each other's backs, you know, regardless of what's going on, we're always going to be uh, a community first. And we've definitely shown that resilience this last last year. Is that something you saw, and not just community-wide, but just at the, the, the office and the workplace as you guys had to, like, creative problem solve, you know, to, to get around some of the hurdles that you faced. Yeah. And, you know, definitely not just on the team that I was a part of as part of our wind projects, but our linemen and our servicemen, when, Mm -hmm. um, tornadoes come through or ice storms come through, they're the ones that are getting in their trucks and going out there and working in those conditions. So, uh, Excel and our, uh, craftsmen and women that work for us definitely show that resilience that, uh, we've seen as a community this last year. What does this area have too much of? You know, everybody answers this question with wind. Yeah, you're not going to say that. Yeah, I I better not say that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would say good restaurants. Okay. There's way, you know, Denver, especially, I always compare things back to Denver. It was hard to find the good restaurants per capita like we have here. And, you know, when my wife and I or our families go out to eat, we almost have to go to uh, the people's court and argue our case for going to place A rather than place B. Yeah. And so it's a problem of abundance. You just, it's too hard to choose. Yeah. Hence why I have a, an exercise bike in our guest bedroom. Okay. <laughs> well, what does this area not have enough of? I would say from, especially with the experience I have is skilled craftspeople. Okay. So the, uh, not only the engineers, you know, being a, uh, a post-education, uh, degree or skill. It's not just school. It's not just engineers. It's the electricians, the pipe fitters, the welders, the wind technicians. You know, we have so much opportunity for those people here in Amarillo and sometimes it's hard to find them. So I wish we had more and especially the, the younger engineers and younger craftspeople. Yeah. And that's something that's been really excited about or exciting about maybe some of the work that Amarillo College is doing. They're starting to adapt a lot of their programming to do those 
you know, professional certificates or to drive people into these these careers like a wind technician that maybe don't require a four year degree, but require some education. And there's a lot of opportunity here. Yeah, Emerald College is a fantastic resource. And uh, WT as well with the engineering program that they've stood up and have going and are looking to grow. Uh, WT is just an awesome resource. I actually got my uh, MBA from there two years ago. And, you know, from the area, you think of WT as the the hub for the Texas panhandle. But going and attending WT and taking classes down there, it's unbelievable how many people from around the country and around the world Hmm. attend WT. It's just phenomenal and amazing. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? It's a great book that you don't judge by the cover. And when I, when I told my coworkers and friends in Denver when I was moving back, they said, Amarillo, how are you going to live in that hot, humid place? I was like, you guys don't have a clue what Amarillo yeah. is. You know, Amarillo looks like 60% of Colorado, and it's, it's, uh, it's not the most attractive place visually, but the people in the community that you're in are unbelievable. I'd like to compare it to, you know, in, in Colorado, if you see a person with a Texas license plate broken down, you're probably not going to get help. Right. Um, here, if you break down, sometimes it, somebody else will be at your tire helping you change it before you can even yeah. get out of your car and get to your tire. So it's the community that makes Amarillo uh, what Amarillo is. We talked about uh, the area having too many uh, good restaurants, but I'm still going to ask, what's your favorite local <laughs> restaurant? Um, this is a tough one, but I would probably say Jorge's restaurant there on Bell Street. Okay. Unfortunately, it's really close to our house, so we probably go there too much, but uh, the fajitas and queso are unbelievable. I'm lucky there's no queso on this microphone in front of me. <laughs> there may be a chunk out of it, but uh, let's go, we'll go with Jorge's. On okay. That yeah, that's that's a that's a good call. What's your favorite local coffee shop? Another tough one. There's too many to pick from there, but it'd be a toss-up between Palace and Cliffside. You know, if I'm looking to meet somebody for a social cup of coffee and socialize, it's Palace. If I'm looking for the Saturday morning cup of coffee while we're still in our pajamas with the yeah. dogs in the back of the car, we're going to be driving through uh, a cliffside. So. Okay. And, you know, the palace, I, I would think the downtown location is is pretty close, uh, you know, to the the headquarters of Excel there. I, I wanted to ask, and, and I didn't earlier, like, with this past project, how much time did you actually spend, like, in the office, then how how much of it was spent out in the field? I mean, were you dividing time between here and, and New Mexico? Yeah, it was it was probably split there at the beginning, and then once COVID happened and we moved out of our downtown offices right. and started working remotely, it's it was probably seventy percent uh, time on site and thirty percent from home. Okay, and, so you do spend a lot of time on the road then, trying to yeah. get an eye on things, I guess. Listen to plenty of Hey Amarillo podcasts okay, over the last couple of years. I appreciate that. <laughs> Um, what's the most underrated aspect of living here? I would say this is probably my extremely logical and analytical mind talking here, but the cost of living it's compared to Denver and Austin, the other places I've been, it's awesome. The cost of living that we have here, you can afford to have a very nice house and, you know, live comfortably and travel and, you know, get to grow other parts of your life where you couldn't otherwise elsewhere. Okay. And last question, when was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? I really had to dust the memory off for this one. And honestly, I don't know. Okay. It was probably in high school, and I probably was up to no good, so probably don't want to remember what we were doing out there, but it's definitely been a while. Okay, so long ago, you can't 
attach a date to it, I guess. No. Yeah. Okay. No. Um, so that concludes uh, the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guest to endorse something. So what's one thing that you would want listeners to know about or to experience? Yeah, I would endorse uh, Meals on Wheels of Amarillo. Okay. I'm lucky to be involved with that organization. And it's for those that aren't familiar, it's an organization that you know we provide and deliver a hot meal uh, at lunchtime to homebound seniors of our community and it helps us keep the seniors in their homes where they want to be yeah um and it's amazing what we've done at uh, meals on wheels we're celebrating our 50th year um, of being uh, in existence this year Uh, since 20 or 1971 when we started we've delivered over two and a half million meals to amarillo seniors and we deliver over you know about 330 meals every day and uh, we're always in need of volunteers. So if you're ever interested in volunteering with Meals on Wheels, it's awesome to deliver meals, visit with our seniors, and it's a short you know, one- to two-hour commitment mm-hmm. every week or even less. Like uh, our family has adopted a route, and there's six of us, and we just uh, pick who delivers one week. So you only have to deliver every six weeks or so. So it's a small commitment for an awesome cause. Yeah, so my, my mom used to deliver Meals on Wheels when I was a kid. Uh, and she would take me along, you know, with her. And, and I have uh, a lot of f- funny memories of, of doing that. One of the people that we delivered to uh, had a fake leg. And I just remember the one time we went in and the leg was not attached. And I was so young that like that really freaked me out. I, I could not understand uh, as a five-year-old or six-year-old. Uh, so I've always associated that oddly with Meals on Wheels. But yeah, I agree. It's just a fantastic organization. It's a really... Um, it's, it's a really helpful thing to do where you immediately see the impact of what you do. You know, you're working with a person, you're providing a meal immediately, as opposed to a lot of organizations where you might volunteer, but you don't get to see the end result all the time. Yeah. I always say that, you know, our volunteers and our drivers, me personally, I get more out of it every time I do it than, you know, probably the meal that our clients get. So it's, always enjoy it. It's fantastic. Okay. Well, Brian Hudson, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was fun. It was a great time. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Brian for the original interview. Thanks also to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum, Bivens Point, and Terra Accounting and Consulting for supporting the show. This episode was edited, as always, by the great Angelina Marie. And, of course, Hey Amarillo exists every week because of listeners like you. Thank you for listening. And because of the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. If you want to do that, I'd love for you to do that. Just go visit. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Barbara and Jim Witten, Chriselda, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Jess Heredia, and Ryan Pennington. This has been... Amazingly enough, episode 184. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.